But today, this verse, that passage we're going to be looking at, well, I guess the thought that came to my mind when I started um, going over this verse over and over again was when David Guzik yesterday talked, or last week talked about Martin Luther, who uh, said, if the Bible were a tall tree, the verses are the branches, and he says, I've shaken every one of them hard. This was a particular verse where I spent a lot of time the last couple of weeks shaking this branch because it is one of the more unusual passages in the New Testament. But uh, let's begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll dig into it. Father, I ask you that as we gather today in your name, that we come as people who are desiring to not only honor you, to worship you, to direct our, the focus of our life in the direction of your will and purpose for us as a church, as, a, as believers individually, that you would just open your word to us and open our understanding of what it says that we might bring right application to our lives and reap all the benefits that come when we do that. So Lord, guide and direct us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may remain seated. I have to admit that when I first read this uh, statement by Luke in the book of Acts here in verse 11 that God did extraordinary miracles, I was a little bit confused, maybe a little befuddled because I've always felt that miracles are extraordinary events. That's why they stand out to us. Uh, they're times and essentially what, where God overrules the laws of nature and he, the created order of things is really kind of interrupted by God in such a way that he does something that is always out of the ordinary. So whether we talk about something like Moses parting the Red Sea, that's not a usual thing. I've gone down to Little Spokane. I've swatted it with a stick. It didn't do anything except take my stick. When Jesus calmed the waves, he fed the multitudes. When he raised Lazarus from the tomb, all these things were really going against the way things normally go. Seas don't open and stand up on heaps on both sides. You can't break a piece of bread and feed thousands. You can't, you can't uh, take, talk to somebody who is dead and, and bring them back to life ordinarily. And so when those kind of things happen, we immediately understand that God has interposed himself in the natural order of things in such a profound way that not so much to contradict them as to overrule them. Miracles change the ordinary, like death and disease, into things that cannot be explained by any ordinary order of things because miracles basically defy the laws of nature. So that when we read that Jesus walked on the water, we know, and I can only say, one time we were in Israel, and there's a well-known Christian evangelist who was there with some 800 people in his group, and they were all on boats in a circle, and one of the ladies on one of those boats was so inspired by the story of Jesus walking on the water that she ventured to do so as well. Stepped off the boat, and guess what? She went right underwater. All you saw was her hair floating on the surface. And that's kind of the ordinary expectation. That's what you think would happen so that when Jesus walks on the water, when he bids Peter to do the same, and he is sustained on the water until he begins to become fearful, we realize that the ordinary pattern of things has been changed, transformed, altered, and yet eventually goes back to the way they are. So when the incurable are healed, when the unalterable condition is changed, it's a pretty good clue to us that God has imposed himself in a very marked way for a reason. Now, one of the things it does is it makes us aware and reminds us, as Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, he said, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, that the laws of nature are only significant in terms of God upholding them, but if he chose, chooses to change them, that's certainly within his purview. Still, they seem extraordinary because as Paul pointed out from a human perspective, which is a very limited perspective, he said to the Corinthians, I see through a glass darkly. Or to put it in a more uh, understandable way, he says, he's basically saying, I have this fragmentary, incomplete, and imperfect view of the way things are. 
One of the most important things to learn, I believe, in life is that my view is not always accurate. And I find that, well, I'm reminded of that almost every day. I get out of the shower and I have my glasses off. And I look in the mirror and say, well, you're holding up pretty well. <laughs> and then I put my glasses on and it's like, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Nate, years have not been kind. It's, it's those moments where you realize that your perspective of things is limited in terms not only of dimension and reality, but also just simple clarity. That's why we're told in the Bible and Proverbs, don't judge things by the outward appearance. Because so much more is going on inside beyond our purview than we naturally grasp. Yet the question I'm almost often asked is why don't we see more miracles today like they did in Bible times? And I would say it's a matter of perspective. Because, you know, when you go through the Old and New Testament, you realize it only records 180 miracles. We're talking about a 4,000-year period. Now, it also implies that there were many other things, and many of those miracles were so profoundly dynamic that they marked that entire historical period and changed people's lives completely. But the fact is that we do see miracles. They are so frequent that they have become ordinary to us, and we simply take them for granted. I mean... We are so literally surrounded and immersed in a world of miracles that every moment of every day feels kind of ordinary. Let's begin with your existence, the fact that you exist. As Paul explained to the Athenians in chapter 17, he said, for in him, that is in Christ, we live, we move, and we have our being. The very beat of my heart the, the pulsing of the blood through my body, the, the functioning and the absorption of oxygen into my lungs, all those things happen in many ways inexplicably. You see, evolutionary scientists puzzle over the question, why is there something instead of nothing? Now, think about that question for a moment because it's a very important one. It's talking about where did everything come from? See, what they're very good is explaining the mechanics without really understanding who was the maker of those mechanics. Years ago, it was the illustration of the, the watchmaker and the watch. When I see a watch, one thing I realize very quickly is somebody had to make it. If you hand me a pile of watch parts, I'm going to look at it and go, what is it? And when I watch a skilled watchmaker take all those pieces and put them together, you realize that requires a certain bit of not only intelligence, but design. That you have to design a thing to fit into this small capsule and allow the mechanism to interact in such a way that you have an accurate counting of time. And I would suggest to you that when men try to understand life without God then they lose the ability to track the times of their life and their days. Such is the arrogance that we find often expressed in the scientific community, certain absolute certainties about things that nobody can be even partly certain about. For example, one gentleman by the name of uh, Richard Lewontin, he's a Harvard population biologist, and in a maybe an unguarded moment, he wrote in a review once, he said, we in the scientific community take the side of science despite its patent absurdities, its failure to fulfill its promises, and unsubstantiated stories because we have a prior commitment to materialism. And then he said, no matter how counterintuitive, we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. Now, that's what I call science. Follow the science. And we find that that phrase, even in our time, has come to mean basically the version that I like, not the version that may be accurate or true. Yet another more objective scientist recently noted, he said, in the 20th century, the collective evidence became overwhelming forcing scientists to accept that space, matter, energy, and even time had a beginning. Ergo, the cosmos is not eternal, it's created. 
There had to be a creator. And so increasingly, we're finding the scientific community embracing the idea of intelligent design because they no longer can posit accurately or fairly that there wasn't a point which is in a beginning. So that I've said many times that when we talk about the Big Bang Theory, my question isn't, was there a Big Bang that hurled everything into the universe? Other than the fact that I've never seen a, uh, an explosion create anything except chaos. But given that that's even the pop, true, where did the explosives come from and who lit the fuse? You see, it, it always kind of pushes back mechanism to try to get us to ask, stop asking the question, where did it all begin? Well, my whole point isn't to discuss evolution or creationism, although I like to take that opportunity. At the very center of all this is what we would call the miracle of creation. The miracle of existence. Why is there something and not just nothing? What is it that makes the universe something? And that answer is it has to be someone makes it something. Because nothing means there's no thing. Now, I don't mean to bore you with kind of the, the logical of, logic of that, but those kind of simple questions are critically important when we try to understand our place in this world. Because one of the greatest miracles of God's creative effort, which he said was the apex of his creative plan, was you and me, mankind. Created in God's image, by God, created by God and for God. And that remains true of every person who has entered the world even for the most avowed secularists, they cannot help but look at childbirth and call it the miracle of birth. You see, we can, we can photograph, we can make a movie of the moment when gestation happens inside a woman's womb. We can see that, that egg being fertilized and all of a sudden this thing that lies dormant becomes explosive in its cell growth and after nine months, it comes out as you and me. We can write down the progress and what happens each day and each month and how that all happens, but we can't explain where did that spark come from? What was the beginning? Even though scientists have spent billions, billions of dollars trying to figure how they can duplicate that simple, most basic miracle of life itself. That's why the psalmist put it. <laughs> David wrote it in Psalm 139. He said, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Therefore, he goes on to say, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully there means astonishingly complex that I am astonishingly complex as a being and, and it's, it's uniquely and awesomely made and emphasize again that he says, I was made. I didn't just happen to burp up from, the, from some swamp. I was made by God to be me. This is what gives dignity to every life. This is what gives value to every single person who has ever lived or will live is the fact that we are not some cosmic mistake, but we were created by God for God, uniquely and, and wonderfully. Now, what may be even more miraculous is that God did not create us to simply uh, be another mammalian creature that wanders across the face of the earth. As C.S. Lewis, before his conversion, would argue, he said, basically, the reason I have thoughts is because there's atoms ricocheting off my skull. And then one day he asked the question, why do atoms ricochet off my skull? And why do I have thoughts? And why do I think beyond myself? How do I explain that? And why is that unique to mankind? Well, eventually in, in his work called The Weight of Glory, Lewis said the following. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as a life of a gnat. 
but it is immortals to whom we joke and work and marry, snub and exploit, who will either be one day everlasting splendors or immortal horrors. You see, we're not temporary. We're not terminal. We might say that we came to dust, but we do not simply return to dust because there's something within this clay jar that I call my body that is uniquely sparked by God himself and created with a capacity to experience God in a relational dynamic. And to those who have never known that and never had that experience, that seems abstract and almost superstitious. But for those of us who have experienced him, who have, as I've often said, been invaded by the Holy Spirit and having him taking our lives captive, having, in doing so, captured our dreams and our imaginations and our desires and our drives and began to change the entire trajectory of our lives so that we can sing songs like we sang this morning. We can say, Jesus is enough and really mean it because we've really known and experienced it and we really believe it to true, not because of a blind faith, but because of a measurable reality in our lives. But the tragedy is that we choose which side of eternity we want to dwell on. We can dwell on the side with God in the eternal splendor that Lewis talked about, or we can spend eternity in the, in the abysmal outer darkness and gnawing agony of an eternity without God. You see, the soul of man is immortal. God created an immortal soul inside of you, and that soul is more you than anything else you might look at. That's why I can look at a picture of myself when I was a young child, and boy, was I cute. <laughs> and I look at myself today and realize age has not been my friend. But you know, it's the interesting thing as I was talking to my father as he was dying. He said, to see, he said, you know, in my mind, I feel like a 21-year-old man, but my body will not do anything I tell it to do. He was so aware of the aging process and its effect upon the body, and yet it's total lack effect upon the soul because the soul is immortal. And that's why I try to explain to people who you are when you leave this world is who you will be for all of eternity. If you're a person who says, I, I want to go to heaven, I want to be with God, I want my sins forgiven, I want to be renewed, I, I want to be fixed eternally, then he says, then that's what's going to happen. Or if you're one of those things saying, well, I don't really need that stuff, you know, I'm pretty much in charge of the way my life's going and, uh, you know, I, I control everything. Sometimes we think that until we get COVID. Because what is temporary is the material world, a world that so many, too many, worship instead of God. And not realizing, as Peter said so clearly in the third chapter of his second letter, he said, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. At the same time, he said, the Lord is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. But he makes very clear, not because of global warming or climate change. In fact, the divine watchmaker, if I can refer to him in that way, has made a promises, several promises to us. In Genesis 8, after the flood, he said, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Jeremiah the prophet said, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that day and night no longer come at their appointed time, then my covenant can be broken. 
All the things you hear about how we are affecting our planet, I never hear anybody talk about, well, the sun's not going to rise tomorrow or set in the evening. And that's why Proverbs says, he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. I find it fascinating, but you know, um, C.S. Lewis said that we suffer from what he called chronological arrogance. Uh, we think that our times are the most enlightened and we, we really project our, our, our own view of this moment, not only into the future, but into the past. And we hear a lot about the sea levels rising and cities being flooded. And it was curious because as I was doing some reading the other day, one of my hobbies is biblical archaeology, and they were talking about the ancient city of Dor. And it's mentioned throughout the Old Testament, and then suddenly it's just no longer in the story. And they said the reason it didn't become a New Testament location is because the sea levels had risen so high that the city of Dor now is 400 feet under sea level. And they didn't even know about global warming. You see, man doesn't control the climate. God does. In fact, one of the things as you get older becomes very, very clear is there's not a whole lot of anything that you control. My wife even has to tell me what to wear. <laughs> because she's seen what happens when I do it for myself. <laughs> Oh. But when we think of miracles, we are speaking of what the Bible refers to as miraculous signs and wonders. Every single Bible story involves the miracle of one kind or another. In fact, we might rightly say that the entire biblical narrative revolves around things called miracles. Every moment that God reaches in and almost puts his finger on the scale so that natural events change and the course of history is forced to conform to his will. This is why I tell people, if you don't like the way things are going, get on your knees and start praying because when we pray, God hears and when he hears, he moves and things that we think are beyond fixing and are impossible and difficult, God simply can put his finger on that scale and alter the reality in a second. And when we believe that and we know that, then we stop being angry and we become hopeful. Sometimes God did it with massive destructions. Those are what stand out in our mind. We don't think about them as being miracles, but you have to understand, you don't flood an entire planet by forgetting to turn off the faucet. Cities like Sodom and Gomorrah go up in a vapor. Now the archaeologists, as they're digging into the, that site, they're saying there was a, a, some kind of strike of, a, of power and force and fire that reached over 4,000 degrees so that the very dirt and the sand melted underneath the conflagration. It wasn't just a couple of cities that were burnt down. They were literally incinerated into molten sand when we read about the destruction of Egypt by the 10 plagues or the drowning of Pharaoh's chariots, army in the Red Sea. In each case, God acted miraculously on the behalf of his people. And it isn't interesting that here thousands of years later, we're still talking about these events. And even though some try to say, oh, that's just mythology, yet the problem is, is the science is catching up with the Bible and finding there's abundant evidence to support the stories. Similarly, when we move into the New Testament and look at the miracles of Jesus and the apostles, we're witnessing the impossible becoming quite possible. Because as Jesus said in Mark 10, what is impossible for man is not with God. All things are possible with God. Yet it's essential that we're clear on what God's ultimate objective is for doing miracles. Jesus, in fact, tells us very clearly in John 4, 48, he said, unless people see miraculous signs and wonders, they will never believe. Unless they see miraculous signs and wonders, they will never believe. 
And that's why he's also ordained that miracles would continue even into this present age. As he said to Mark before his return to heaven, he said, these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will drive out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes with their hands. And when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. And they will place their hands on sick people and they will get well and they'll go to church without a mask. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Yes, Margaret, I had to do it. Okay, (laughs) anyway. But I'm suggesting to you that Bible miracles are happening every day, even today. I can testify from my own life experiences. I've seen miraculous healings. I I was counting them out the other day. I thought there's at least 10 different times where I was involved in praying for somebody and they were healed to my surprise. Quite honestly, when it happened, I didn't feel power going out of my body. In fact, I sometimes prayed a long time because I was trying to buy time because I'm sure it wasn't going to work, but I wanted to make them feel like I tried real hard. And when it happened, I was was more surprised than they were. It's ironic. I remember praying for one guy. I didn't believe he'd be healed, and he didn't believe he's healed, and he got healed anyway. That shows you the kind of faith I operate with. But you might ask, well, why don't we see this happen more often? In part, again, it's an issue of perspective. You see, the book of Acts only records 18 miracles over a 30-year period. That's one miracle for each year and a half. I know, granted, it does say they, they healed many at various points. But as far as what's really noted and pointed out is these unique events were only noted because they became pivotal moments in the process or the progress of the gospel that God really clearly did certain things at certain times to open up doors that people would believe. Keep in mind, they didn't have the written text of scriptures. Books were only in the hands of the wealthiest. But I think it's also that when we look at the miracles in the book of Acts, not all of them were healing miracles. In fact, six of them are healing miracles. Two, we have events where people are dead and they're brought back to life. Two times, God killed people. So be careful when you pray for a miracle. <laughs> Remember Ananias' fire? Remember Herod uh, Antipas or Herod uh, Agrippa I? Struck dead by the hand of God. In one case, Paul blinds a man by the name of Elemas for blaspheming. Twice people are let free from from bondage. They're let free from incarceration. Two times it's just recorded that they received the Holy Spirit and the power and manifestation of the Spirit's presence in their life. Sometimes I look at these miracles and I think to myself, why is it that the angel came to release Peter from prison, but he let James get his head cut off? It kind of flies in the face of that formula saying God always heals. In fact, quite honestly, the last person I know who was teaching that nearly died from COVID. (laughs) I haven't had a chance to ask him, so did that affect your theological position at all? Life has a way of correcting our bad ideas. Ultimately, we all end up like the prophet Elisha did, Here's this man who healed Naaman the leper by saying, just go and jump in the Jordan seven times. You know, <laughs> jump in the lake and you'll be healed. And he comes out and his skin is like that of a child. And yet 2 Kings 13, 14 tells us, Elijah fell sick of his sickness whereof he died. <laughs> that even Elijah the prophet one day got sick and died. In fact, every person in the Bible, we're talking about even Jesus, had to die on the cross to propitiate our sins. Peter and Paul raised people from the dead, but they too later died. And the same is true of you and me. And I think it's so important for us to understand that when God moves miraculously and does these amazing things, he does them in large part to further his purposes in the world. 
that I know that my life is going to last exactly as long as God finds it's useful. And when my life no longer is useful, he's going to hit the switch and turn me off. I, I've told our leadership in this church, the day I step into the pulpit and I stop, start babbling mindlessly, just recognize I'm starting a new series. No. <laughs> I said, please be so kind as to come up here, put your arm around my shoulder and walk me away and take me to that place where they put people like me. But this text, again, as I said, is, is so perplexing in a sense because it's so gritty. <laughs> God did, not Paul, God did extraordinary miracles. And I think that's, a, that's an important phrase to, to begin with. God is the subject, the action is he did miracles. God did them. And he did them through the agency of Paul so that even, now the translation's a little weak here, his handkerchiefs and aprons, literally... The, the phrase there is sweat rags. In other words, we're talking about that headband that you wear out when you're, you know, you're, you're doing exercise with the oldies like I do. That sweat band that you wear around your head, the aprons that he wear were covered with grit when he worked on building tents. I mean, we're talking about things that are pretty dirty, not really attractive, taking, people coming and poaching his sweatband. You know, when I've used sweatbands, I've left them all around and got in trouble for it. Nobody ever said, let me sneak in and get that one. I mean, it is a gritty picture. People snatching Paul's sweat-soaked headband and apron and then going out and placing him on people who are sick or demon-possessed and seeing God heal them or to do, deliver them from some evil oppression. I mean, it's not like it's the only place in Scripture. In fact, there is one other example that we have of that. Back in chapter 5, we read that the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people, and people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Now, a note, it doesn't say that his shadow healed anybody. But it's a really interesting thing because it's speaking of the desperate need and the response to an answer to unsolvable problems that people had. You see, clearly in an age when medicine was both rare and primitive and sometimes was more deadly than the disease it was trying to cure, when the average life expectancy was 35 years, when 50% of children died within the first five years of life, and if you became infirmed, it meant that you no longer could support yourself. It often led to ostracism and malnutrition and starvation. The people were undoubtedly desperate, and they would turn to everything and anything that might help, even if it meant traveling great distances. And commonly, when people went to the various temples, particularly pagan temples around the world that were renowned for healings, they would often purchase objects, talismans is the term we use it, that they claimed had magical powers. In fact, the temple in Ephesus, and we'll get into this more next time, dedicated to Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was so majestic. Artemis was also the Roman version of, of uh, Diana. Diana of the Romans was somewhat of a morally upright per person. Artemis was, well, there seemed to be no moral restrictions on her life and worship. But she was believed to be the god of, of miracles, the god of healing, and a god of good luck, amongst other things. And so in Ephesus at that time, there would have been large numbers of people who had traveled there to find some kind of efficacious healing for themselves or others. And they sold these little images, as we see in one of the coins from that period. It says Diana and Ephesius. So that this was basically, and we'll get more into what Diana looked like. She was really an interesting person. It's interesting because they have one of the actual statues from Ephesus in the Vatican in Rome. It's, they have the largest collection of Greek and Roman uh, statuary any place in the world. 
And I often thought as you walk through these hallways with all these Greek and Roman uh, statues, especially Greek statues, they're always nude. And I thought, that's why those priests struggle. Um, Just a thought. You know, but it's not unlike the idea of the, the lucky rabbit's foot that came from a very unlucky rabbit. <laughs> I never quite understood that. But I even came across some objects. I went online and started looking for talismans for healing and miracles. And one of them said, a colorful talisman arranged in sacred geometry to help you have positive beliefs about yourself. Sacred geometry. <laughs> it, was a, it was a piece of jewelry that they were selling made of glass for a really lot of money. But the idea is you'd buy this and somehow, if, like people wearing crystals, that this crystal will help me to direct the energy of the universe into my soul so that I can be one with who knows what, the walrus or something. So that later on we read about these small images of Artemis that were sold by the craftsmen for this very purpose. And this kind of tradition carries on even to our present world where we have holy water and we have holy anointing oils. We got prayer cloths, uh, prayer beads, Christ St. Christopher statues. Of course, he got fired. Even, you know, somewhere holy undergarments. I mean, it goes on and on with all of the different things that people think that this object somehow has some sacred capacity or power within it that will channel the, the grace of God or the, the miracles of the universe or something will be channeled into me and, and I'll be better than I am. And we have to understand that God has never empowered objects. There's a reason why he said in the Ten Commandments, you shall not have any images because God said, I will not be objectified. That's why in the temple in Jerusalem, they had the Ark of the Covenant and it had a throne on the top of it with nobody sitting on it. The pagan world mocked the Jews because they said, you have an invisible God. And they responded, yes, our God is invisible. <laughs> we can't see him, but he controls everything. But the very idea that you would take an object, and that's what happened over and over again with Israel. Why did they march out to battle with the Ark of the Covenant? Because they thought they could win with God on their shoulders. You know what happened? They got the snot beat out of them. And the Ark was captured. They took the, the, the staff that Moses held up in the wilderness to drive the snakes away. And it says, as late as the end of the kingdom of Judah, they were worshiping and bowing down to the staff. There's something within human nature that craves to objectify God in a way so that we can control what he does. And God always resists that. So even though... Uh, the practice of stealing Paul's sweatband was based upon a combination of desperation and even pagan superstition. It appears that God still had mercy and allowed it to work. And that's where we, we wrestle with this, at least I do. The fact that Luke emphasized that before the thefts had taken place, it said God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. It wasn't Paul, it wasn't the sweatband, it was God. He wants us to be clear on our understanding that this was something that God did. It also is noted by Luke that it had not happened before, nor do we ever read of it ever happening again. So importantly, he's not recommending it as a practice. But telling us this was something really peculiar that I'm sure that he himself did not quite understand. But just, you know, just to make sure that you're clear on what I'm saying, when you're watching, you know, Christian TV and they, they talk about, you know, sending your money to get this jar of oil that this person has prayed over, you can get the same oil down at World Market or Fred Meyer. <laughs> There's nothing magic about it. God isn't going to put it in there and then you put it on your head. And yet we find people have marketed those kind of things over and over again, and people have naively brought, bought them. But here's the thing I think is interesting. 
as David was sharing about the conversion of Martin Luther, and this great thunderstorm breaks out and he thinks he's going to die, do you remember who David said he prayed to? Saint Anne, the patron saint of minors, which his family were minors. And yet, God heard his prayer. And I think there's something really important for us to grasp in that. You see, in short, I see three categories of miracles. There are the ordinary miracles that I talk about creation. When, when uh, John writes in the beginning of his gospel, he says, of Christ, that through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. The world was made through him. And then secondly, he's, he writes to the, Paul writes to the Colossians, in him all things consist. Literally, they cohere or held together. So that not only did God create the world, he sustains the world. The world isn't subject to human abuse that suddenly contravenes the plan of God. God the creator has created it and he will maintain it and sustain it. And I'm not saying that we can't be irresponsible in our stewardship of the planet. I mean, that should be granted. Some of us are irresponsible the way we steward our cars. So it's okay. But it doesn't change the plan of the universe just because of our lack of responsibility or incompetence. Because ultimately God controls it all. It's in his hands. And we don't have to lay awake tossing. Before I was saved, I was a, when I was going to college, I, I read Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb. That would have been 1968. And I remember reading it, and he basically said, in 20 years, starvation will rage across the world, and half the world's population will die of starvation. There won't be clean water. I mean, I read this whole thing, and it so terrified me that I was very careful. When I brushed my teeth, I would only use a little bit of water. Because I said, one day I don't want to regret the fact that I, did, that I wasted water. And on it went. And it terrified me. The fact that not only did it not happen and that Paul Ehrlich still has a career is amazing to me. He's still running a whole organization to limit population growth. <laughs> because of the same warnings. But you see, God is in control of this universe, not you and me. And the more we're centered in that reality, the less stress we have about the way things are going in our life or in our world. God, Nebuchadnezzar, came to learn, raises up kings, and he brings them down. They are subject to his will, not ours. But secondly, not only are there ordinary miracles, I think, that are around us all the time, but there are sign miracles, like he said in John 4, 48. Jesus says, I will do things so that people will believe in the power of God. And then we have, lastly, this category, the extraordinary. Literally, if we were translated, it would be one-of-a-kind miracles. In fact, the word extraordinary comes from the Latin extraordinarius, which literally means outside the normal course of events. It was so much out of the normal course of events that this really fits into the highly unusual. And I would simply say, as he told us back in chapter 17, that in the past, God winked at this ignorance. So what I'm saying is there are people who may be approaching God in the wrong way, but they're doing it with a sincere desire that God many times just winks at the wrong way and does it anywhere, anyway. You see, I used to worry about always making the right decision. You ever been paralyzed by that? I mean, again, when I was first saved, I took obedience to God so seriously, I would walk up to a, a street light, and I would stand there, and I would ask as I stood in the corner, Lord, which way should I go, this way or that way? Because I was so terrified of being outside of God's will. Fortunately, I came to a point where I realized... I'm going insane because I couldn't make a decision. I just stood there in the corner for a very long period of time waiting to hear the voice of God. And then suddenly it occurred to me, even if I make the wrong decision with the right heart, God can take my wrong decision and make it a right decision because he can control the universe. And I stopped worrying about, am I making the right decision? I just said, God, in faith, I'm going to trust you. And that's how I ended up in Spokane. Quite literally. On paper, coming to Spokane made absolutely zip sense. 
It was all the wrong decisions. And yet I'll never forget that afternoon when my wife and I, after we'd spent 12 hours in this city, and we looked at each other kind of, kind of amazed. We said, we're supposed to move here. <laughs> just, how do we explain this? I just bought a house two months earlier. I'm going to lose a lot of money. <laughs> the whole thing was a bad idea. They paid me a nice salary. Coming here, good luck. <laughs> I mean, it was like, uh, there was nothing on it that made any sense whatsoever. My kids were in a private Christian school. Here, we couldn't afford even to... Well, I won't go any further. <sighs> I'm just saying that there are times when you sit there and say, God, this makes no sense, but this is what you want. I know it. Bless my faith in you. What I'm suggesting you do is that I think that this whole story speaks of the incredible mercy of God. Despite the fact that their faith was based on superstition and their superstition was directed to Jesus from Paul's preaching. They didn't know anything about the gospel. They, knew, they just knew that this man, Paul, who talked about Jesus, touched people and they were healed and miracles took place. And so in their own creative way, they said, let's see if we can steal something that he has touched, or in this case, sweat it all over, and take it like we would in a pagan temple and put it on the sick and see if they're healed. Their thinking was twisted, but God looks at the heart, not the heads. God meets us where we're at. You see, sometimes you and I think we have to be perfect in our faith or perfect in our theology or else God won't hear us or heal us. But we're wrong. As Lewis said in his book, Surprised by Joy, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. That's why the psalmist told us that God is a merciful, gracious God who abounds in mercy. That we don't understand that because, let's be honest, you and I are not very merciful, generally speaking. We're kind to those we like, enjoy, and get along with. We can pretty be pretty harsh and critical with those that we don't. But God is not just merciful. He's not just gracious. He abounds in his mercy towards us. That he didn't come for the perfect. He came to take away our imperfection and place it upon himself so that in Christ we might be declared by God as being perfect, not because we are, but because his sacrifice was perfect. As Paul said to the Colossians, you have been made complete in him. The word complete that's used there in the original literally means that you've been filled to the brim and overflowing. There's, there's nothing left undone. There's nothing lacking. And I know you and I, we're all the same. We, we look at ourselves, whether actually or, or just figuratively, and we see all of our flaws and all of our errors. In fact, if you read the Bible, you get a regular, as I do, daily in-depth reminder of how flawed and failing I am. How short I fall of his glory with, with, with regularity, and yet to know that God looks at me not in my fallibility, but he looks at me in the perfection of Christ. So yeah, these people were whacked out. They had crazy ideas. They were driven by fears and superstitions and a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge. And yet, God wasn't looking at what they were lacking. He was looking at what they had. And what they had was a realization that this person that Paul is talking about has manifested himself in healing power and operating out of the rubric of their own superstitions they did something that I would not recommend you do because you've listened to this and now you know better 
It's like people come to me sometimes and say, would you, would you pray for me? Because I know that God hears your prayers. Are you sure? <laughs> I got a list of things I prayed for that haven't come to pass. So I'm not sure that I'm as powerful as you might think. But I would say this, as Billy Graham once said, your prayers get to God just as quickly as mine do. God is not looking at what you don't have. He's looking at what you have. And when we come to that realization that my God is so abounding in mercy that when I turn my heart and my eyes to him and I say, God, please have mercy upon me, I often say that crying for God's mercy is an irresistible cry. It's like looking at puppies for me. (laughs) I just want to go up and grab them and hug them. And even if they pee on me, it's okay. And I'm just telling you, I peed on Jesus a lot of times. <laughs> and he told me, it's okay. Because I just love your little puppy breath. <laughs> the elders are now coming to put their arm around me and leave me up. <laughs> I'll quit. Father God, I ask in the precious name of your son, Jesus, who loved us before we even gave him a second thought who laid his life down to be crucified and to suffer that horrible death with his mind fixed upon every single one of us who would one day believe on him. The God whose mercy is so extravagant, his his love is so incomprehensible that he would love someone like us leaves our hearts humbled and broken, Lord. We know, Lord, that we fall short of your glory. And yet that never hinders your mercy and your grace and your kindness to us. Because all of that rests in who you are, not who we are. I pray, Lord, that we would understand that to a a level in our lives where it would be freeing and healing and we would never be reluctant to ever turn to you no matter how much we have failed or messed up. We would never be afraid to turn to you and say, oh Lord, show me your kindness, your goodness, your grace. I just ask this, Father, of you in Jesus' name.